0: You're listening to WGDR Plainfields and WGDH Hardwick community radio from Goddard College I listen when I'm naked this is a journey into sound
1: brought to you in living color on
0: WGDR I'm Tony Epstein it's the magical mystery tour join us as we dive into the heart of things exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous crazy world we share together.
1: Lying on your back in the grass,
0: you can't see a thing
1: except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky.
0: Filling in the song.
1: Higher and higher. Filling it the song. Filling in the song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. About your world stay tuned
0: are you sitting comfortably or put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride because i am the narrator Voice the guides the blind Follow up not with your ears but your mind And allow me to take you back on force through time To explain the significance of things You may think insignificant now
1: But won't Further down the line
0: Good morning. Today's show features Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Marshall Rosenberg taught nonviolent communication all over the world for many years and helped create schools that taught nonviolent communication to kids. In this presentation, Marshall Rosenberg talks about how to change the way we think and the way we think about ourselves and about others.
1: The process I call nonviolent communication consists of A value system that we are trying to live by that outlines a language, thinking, communication skills that support that way of living. And I'd like to clarify for you the structure of the process itself. For the moment, let me just give you an overview of what nonviolent communication consists of to help support us in creating compassionate giving. First, it requires a radical transformation of language. For about 10,000 years, over most of our planet, people have been operating according to what I call domination structures. Structures in which some people claim to be superiors and have the right to control others because they know what's best. Some of these people call themselves kings. Some call themselves czars, But whatever they call themselves, it's very important for their structures to sustain themselves that people be educated to be obedient to them. So how do you educate people to be submissive and obedient? Well, you need to teach them a language in which they get disconnected from their own power and look outward to authority to guide how they are meant to live. To do this requires a language that is static, that describes what people are, whether they are good or bad, right or wrong, normal or abnormal. So to maintain domination structures, a core component is to educate people with such a static language, that uses the verb to be in ways that judge people, their behavior, their appearance, their intelligence. And in addition to this language that I call a language of domination, it's also important to teach people retributive justice. Retributive justice basically implies that if you are judged as bad, by the authorities, you deserve to suffer for it, to receive punishment. And if you are positively judged by authorities as good, then you deserve to be rewarded. It's my belief that this combination of teaching people to think in a static way, in terms of good, bad, right, wrong, normal, abnormal, appropriate, inappropriate, mentally normal, mentally ill. That way of thinking combined with retributive justice based on punishment and reward, I believe is at the heart of violence on our planet. Nonviolent communication offers us a different language than a language that implies whether people deserve to be punished or rewarded. Nonviolent communication focuses our attention on human needs, whether human needs are being fulfilled or not. When they're not, obviously what is called for is to find ways that we can behave that nurture these needs. This is a radically different way of thinking, so instead of judging right or wrong, to determine whether people are punished or not or rewarded or not. Nonviolent communication focuses on what is happening to our needs. If our needs are not being fulfilled by what is happening, let us take action that fulfills our needs. If our needs are being fulfilled, let's celebrate. So this is a radical departure from the language of domination, a language of judging what people are. And nonviolent communication shows us three other important forms of communication that support expressing our needs and understanding the needs of other people. First, nonviolent communication suggests clarity about Actions that are supporting needs being fulfilled or not So nonviolent communication suggests that we make clear observations That we can tell people when their actions are meeting our needs and when their actions are not meeting our needs Another component of nonviolent communication are feelings Feelings are manifestations of what is happening to our needs When our needs are not being fulfilled, we feel unpleasant feelings. When our needs are being met, we feel pleasureful feelings. And a fourth component of nonviolent communication, are requests. When we see that our needs are not being fulfilled, we need to request of ourselves or others what actions we would like taken to better meet our needs. So these four components make up nonviolent communication. The most basic our needs. And then observations of what is fulfilling our needs and what isn’t. feelings to identify the results of what’s happening to our needs now. whether they’re being met or not, our feelings reveal that to us. And our request what we would like done about. Are needs that are not being fulfilled. These four components are rather different than the language that I was taught. I went to schools for 21 years. And in those years of schooling, I was never asked, for example, what my needs were or what my feelings were. And very rarely was I ever asked what my requests were. The schools I attended were basically schools in which the teachers used a language of judgments. They told you whether what you did was right or wrong, good or bad. And so in such an environment, we don't learn a language of life. We learn a language that orients us to what authority wants us to believe and do. So nonviolent communication shows us both how to make these four components clear to people. And these four components basically answer two questions. What's alive in us? You see, when we say what is contributing to our well being, how we feel, and what our needs are that are behind our feelings, that answers the question of what's alive in us at a given moment. And a second question that nonviolent communication directs itself to is. What would make life more wonderful? And that's where our requests come in. We say what we would like to make life more wonderful. So nonviolent communication involves sharing what's alive in us and what would make life more wonderful. And to receive the same information from other people, to connect with what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful for them. And it has been my experience that when we connect at this level, what's alive in each other and what would make life more wonderful for each other, and we avoid the following, we can find ways of getting everyone's needs fulfilled compassionately. But we need to avoid the following. First, we need to avoid any language that sounds like criticism or blame or insults. Next, we need to avoid presenting our request to others in which they hear as a demand. I have found through my working with people over the years that any time people hear criticism or demands makes it very difficult for people to enjoy contributing to one another's well-being. So nonviolent communication suggests that we avoid at all times the following strategies for trying to influence people to do what we are requesting. We want people to know that we never want anything done that we request out of guilt or shame created by criticism they hear coming from us. I believe that any time we influence people by criticism blame insults even if they do what we request it will be very costly to us because then they're not giving compassionately from the heart they're giving to avoid shame or guilt and giving done out of that energy I believe is costly to both parties in any relationship nonviolent communication also suggests that we avoid at all times any use of punishment now that shocks many people around the world that i work with they have the idea that without punishment you have anarchy you'll have violence you'll have all kinds of horrible things happen they believe that the only way you can have order is through a justice system in which people are punished if they don't do what the authorities think is right in subsequent sessions i will show how we can resolve conflicts without any kind of punishment. But that's not easy for many people to feel comfortable with that I work with because they have been in schools, families, governments that are all set up on the basis of retributive justice. The idea that there are certain things you must do and if you don't do them then you deserve to suffer for what you have done. And if you do these things which are defined as right by authorities, then you deserve to be rewarded. So when I suggest other alternatives to conflict resolution than punishment and reward, it's enormously shocking to people. One of the things that helps is I say to people that if you ask yourself two questions, you will see that punishment and reward never work. And what are these two important questions? Question number one, if somebody's doing something you don't like, what would you like them to do differently? Now, if you answer only that question, it can lead you to think that punishment sometimes works. Because certainly we can all think of evidence, I would guess, of a time when maybe we were influenced to do something out of fear of punishment, or we were able to influence our children to do things because they were afraid they'd be punished if they didn't. So if you define works as simply getting people to do what you want, punishment sometimes works. But if you ask a second question of yourself, I believe you will see that punishment never works. And what is this second question? what do you want the other person's reasons to be for doing what you request of them? When people ask this second question, what do you want other people's reasons to be for doing what you want them to do? They soon see that any time we get people to do things out of fear that we're going to punish them if they don't, or out of shame or guilt, it's very obvious then that whatever we got that person to do is costly because we are then experienced as a source of violence somebody who is prepared to make them suffer if they don't do what we want and it's pretty obvious to everybody that that is very costly because to whatever degree people see us as violent rather than compassionate makes it that much harder for them to enjoy compassionately relating to us now people wonder why I put rewards into this same category of something that if you ask what do you want people's reasons to be that you won't use it they say well aren't rewards nice Uh, doesn't it make people want to do things and I say it may motivate people to do things But that's not getting people motivated to do things out of compassion, out of enjoyment that comes naturally from contributing to people's well-being. Rewards get people to do things out of a whole different energy, not out of a desire to enrich life, but out of a desire to gain something that they want to gain. I like very much Alfie Cohn's book, Punished by Rewards, for clarifying how rewards are equally violent as punishment. Now, nonviolent communication then suggests that we not only avoid criticism, rewards, punishment, it also suggests the danger of a language that denies choice. I often refer to this language that denies choice by using the German word Amtssprache. I started to use that phrase Amtssprache having read about the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. At his trial for war crimes in Jerusalem Eichmann was asked, was it difficult for you to send thousands of people to their death? Eichmann answered very honestly. He said, To tell you the truth, it was easy. Our language made it easy. That answer shocked his interviewer, and his interviewer said, What language? And Eichmann said, My fellow Nazi officers and I. We came up with a name for describing the language which we were taught in schools to use and and especially to use in our position as officers in the military. And we called this language Amtsprache, between us. Well, in German, Amt means office and Sprache means language. So what they were referring to then was a language of bureaucracy. Eichmann was asked for some examples of Amtsprache eichmann said it's a language in which you deny responsibility for your actions and if you don't feel responsible for your actions you don't feel so bad when you do things like send people to their deaths he was asked for some examples of this and eichmann said well if somebody asks you why you do it you say i had to i had no choice and if people Question that and say, well, what do you mean you had no choice? Then you say, superior's orders, company policy, it's the law. A dangerous, dangerous language, a language that denies choice. Nonviolent communication is designed to help us remain conscious of choice every moment, to believe that every action we take, we choose to take. We don't necessarily like some actions that we take but we don't do anything we don't choose to do that bothers a lot of people when I say that in our trainings around the world for example uh, a story that clarifies this occurred in a city in the United States where I was working with some parents and teachers And when I suggested that words like have to, should, ought, must, can't are dangerous as I would define danger because they turn out people who don't feel responsible for their actions. And one of the mothers who attended this session got very upset and she said, but there are some things you have to do that you have no choice over. There are things I do every day that I hate to do, but there are some things you have to do. And it is our job as parents and teachers to see that our children do what they have to do. I said to her, could you give me an example of something you do that you believe now that you have no choice about? And she thought for a moment and said, oh, there's so many things, but okay, here's one. When I go home this evening, I have to cook. I hate to cook. I hate it with a passion. But I have done it every day for 20 years. Even when I've been sick, I do it. There just are some things you have to do. I told her I was very sad to hear anybody do anything even one time out of that kind of thinking. Thinking in which you believe you have no choice. And I told her that I was hoping that that if I made clear the value of nonviolent communication and she applied it, she would see many more options open to her in her life. I'm pleased to say she was a very rapid student and applied nonviolent communication very quickly in her life. She went home that very evening from the workshop and announced to her family that she no longer wanted to cook. I got some feedback from her family. The feedback happened three weeks later when at another introductory session I was doing in town, who shows up but her older two sons. She had four sons. And they came up to talk to me before the session started. And I said, I'm really glad you came up to visit me before the session started. I'm very curious as to what's going on in your home. Your mother has been calling me up about every other day. Telling me about the major changes she's been making in her life since the training. And I'm always very curious as to how other family members respond to this. When one family member comes home speaking a rather different language. I said, for example, that first night when she said that she no longer wanted to cook, I'd like to know what reaction you had to that. And the oldest son said to me, Marshall, I just said to myself, thank God. I said, uh, how did you come to that? He said, I said to myself, now maybe she won't complain at every meal. That very clearly communicated what concerns me about any language that denies choice. It leads us often to be slaves of authority when it is not to the well-being of people to be slaves of authority. So, nonviolent communication is a language that heightens our consciousness that we have choice. Every moment of our lives, we have choice. Nobody can make us do anything. My own children taught me that from the time they were two years old on. They taught me I couldn't make them do anything. If I were to say, please put your toys back in the toy box now, it's time for dinner. They might say, no. And I would say, don't you hear what daddy said? Please put your toys back in the toy box. No. So my children taught me I couldn't make them do anything. All I could do is make them wish they had. Then if I would do that, they taught me another lesson. That if I made them wish they had, they would make me wish I hadn't made them wish they had. In other words, violence creates violence. Punishment creates counter violence. People who have studied nonviolent communication with us usually have two things to say about it. First, they say how simple it is, because it basically focuses on these two questions that I described what's alive in us? and what would make life more wonderful. And to hear that same information in others, what's alive in them and what would make life more wonderful for them. So people say how simple this is. At the same time, they say how difficult it is. Now, how can something be so simple and so difficult? Well, it is simple. Nonviolent communication is a more natural way of being. It simply says, let's stay connected to life, the life within us. Like any other form of life, whether it be a tree or animals, life requires being connected enough to life to know how to fulfill our needs. So, in that sense, nonviolent communication is a very simple process. But the second thing that people say about it is how difficult it can be. And the reason that it's so difficult is that it requires liberating ourselves from centuries of education that have... Buried what's alive in us behind cultural education that is designed to make us nice dead people, not compassionate living people. So I look forward to seeing how we can connect with nonviolent communication in a way that helps us to live our lives more fully.
0: We're listening to Marshall Rosenberg here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
1: In this session, I would like to focus on how we apply nonviolent communication within ourselves. Many of us have been programmed to communicate in terms of a language of categorizing people and their actions to judge what they are for doing what they're doing. I was working in one culture in Malaysia that had a radically different language than the one I was taught. My interpreter wanted to start the day by having a half hour with me he said I need to explain to you some things about our language which may be different than yours that I'd like you to be aware of because if you're not aware of this it will make my job as an interpreter more difficult so we met for a half an hour before the day started and he said you know Marshall it's important to be aware that in our language we have no verb to be in the sense of judging what people or their actions are So if you use any language today that judges people or their actions in that way, it will be very hard for me to interpret. I thought of this for a moment, and I thought to myself, how can I go through a day without insulting people? My brain had been programmed to think moment by moment in terms of what will people think of me? Will they judge me right or wrong, good or bad, appropriate or inappropriate? And I was taught to judge other people this way. So the thought of a language that didn't contain this, it kind of amazed me. And so I said to my interpreter, Well, how will you interpret today then if I should say to somebody, You're selfish. He said, Oh, Marshall, that would be a real challenge. Because as I tell you, we don't think that way. I said, Well, how will you interpret that then? He said, Well, if you say to somebody, You're selfish. Here's how it would sound like in our language. I would say Marshall sees you taking care of your needs, but not the needs of others. He'd like you to take care of the needs of others as well. When I heard that, I smiled and I said to myself, my goodness, that's pure nonviolent communication. Well then why was I there to teach them their native language? Well, actually I wasn't there to teach them nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication was their native language. Their one senator for 60,000 people asked me to work with his people because logging interests were coming into their habitat and destroying their environment. And his people didn't know how to speak with people who worked for the logging interest, who spoke a different language. So he was wanting me to show them how you communicate with people who speak this different language. O.J. Harvey at the University of Colorado went around the world and took samples of literature from different cultures to see how often this verb to be was used in judging people's actions good, bad, right, wrong, etc. And he correlated this with measures of violence violence toward oneself, violence toward others and he finds a high correlation the more cultures think in terms of what people are their actions are the more violence in those cultures now we have four friends that can help alert us that we are thinking in a way that contributes to violence these four feelings are very helpful because when we feel these feelings we can use them as an alert that we're thinking in a way that's contributing to violence on the planet and here is an opportunity for us to transform that thinking. So what are these four friends that we have? Anger, depression, guilt, and shame. Whenever we're feeling those feelings, we are thinking in a way that we have been taught to think for about 10,000 years. A way of thinking designed to make us obedient to authority, but a way of thinking that is not conducive to safety and peace on our planet. So we can use those feelings as a wake-up signal. Wake up. We're thinking in a way that's not conducive to peace on the planet. Let's transform the thinking into one that promotes peace on our planet. So let me show you what I mean. When we work with groups on the subject of anger, that's a good feeling to teach us nonviolent communication because anger tells us that we are disconnected from our needs, which are the central part of nonviolent communication. And anger tells us we're thinking in a way that creates violence on the planet. I was working on this subject with a group of prisoners in a prison, and uh, one of them uh, was very angry on this particular day, and I asked him uh, what the stimulus for his anger was. What did somebody do that is triggering his anger? I could just tell he was so angry. He said, I made a request to the prison officials two weeks ago for some job training. I still haven't heard from them. I said, yeah, that tells me what the stimulus was for your anger. Now, what's the cause of your anger? He said, I just told you. And I said, oh, no, you remember from our previous session? I tried to make clear to you that it's never what other people do that makes us angry. It's how we think that makes us angry. So what are you telling yourself that's making you angry? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. People can make you angry. I said, no, people can't make you angry. If you follow me around in my work, you'd see this very clearly. For example, when I'm working in several places around the world where there's been a lot of violence, such as Rwanda, I was working with a group of... People, all of whom had had at least one member of their family killed. And some of them were so angry that all they could live for was vengeance and think of getting back at the other people. And some of the people who had had horrible things happen to them were not angry. They weren't repressing the anger or denying it. But they were not thinking in a way that creates the anger. So not even something as dramatic as having a member of one's family killed can make you angry so I said to this prisoner so what are you telling yourself that does make you angry and after a moment he said well I'm telling myself it isn't fair I need the training that I requested and they're just you know ignoring me and treating me like I'm nothing and he went on to give several other statements of the judgments that he had of the prison officials for not having ...gotten back to him about his request for job training. I said, okay, now you've answered my question of what causes your anger. Anger is caused by how you think. You think language that is disconnected from your needs... ...and makes violence enjoyable. As the Christian theologian Walter Wink said... ...we've been educated for many years, thousands of years... ...to make violence enjoyable... See, all you need to do to make violence enjoyable is think there's bad guys and that these bad guys deserve to suffer for what they've done and it can make it enjoyable for you to create pain for these people. So anger is a very valuable feeling. It tells us we are perpetuating the thinking that creates that kind of anger. So with this prisoner, I showed him that it's valuable then when you are angry to be conscious that you're angry because of your own thinking, and not because of what the other person did. The other person's action is a stimulus for your anger, but not the cause. The cause is your thinking. Then I said to him, it's also very important, once you have identified the thinking that causes your anger, it's important to be conscious that that thinking is a tragic, suicidal expression of an unmet need see, anger tells us, in other words, that a need of ours isn't getting met. But our thinking doesn't connect with that need. Our connection goes to judging the other person who is the stimulus in a way that creates the anger. So I said to this prisoner, now go behind those judgments that you're making of the prison officials for not responding to your request for some job training. And what's the need behind all these judgments, that they're not being fair, they're treating you like you don't exist. What's the need that's behind all that thinking? He thought for a moment and said, I need to develop myself. I need skills for developing myself so I can earn a living when I get out of here. Otherwise, I'm gonna end up back in here very quickly. Then I said to him, now, how are you feeling at this moment that your attention is on those needs? And he said, I'm scared, I'm scared. You see we cannot be angry when we're connected to life and what I mean by connected to life is to be connected to our needs or to the needs of others. We can only be angry when we get disconnected from life and go up to our head and think in a way we have been programmed to think to think in terms of wrongness of the other person. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being angry. Uh, That would be unfortunate if I come across that way because a lot of people have been educated to think that if you're a nice person, you don't get angry. And they've been taught to repress their anger. So I'm certainly not saying that. I'm saying the opposite. Anger is a friend of ours. It tells us we're thinking in a way that's contributing to violence on the planet. We're a part of that violence and anger wakes us up and gives us a chance to transform our thinking to a kind of thinking that creates peace on our planet. So I said to him, notice how differently you feel when you're in touch with your needs than when you're judging the other people. When you tell me that you're scared that you're not gonna get that need met. And he said, that's right. Now I said to him, you tell me you have an appointment to talk to them later this afternoon, the prison officials? He said, yes. I said, do you think you're more likely to get your needs met if you go in there thinking of what's wrong with them for not having contacted you by now and feeling angry about that. Or are you more likely to get your needs met if you go in there connected to your need for wanting to develop yourself and aware of your fear that you may not develop those skills. No matter what you might say to them, do you think you are more likely to come out with your needs met if in your head you have judgments of them implying wrongness on their part or if you are conscious of your needs. He said, it's obvious. I'm much more likely to come out of there with what I want if I go in conscious of my needs. I said, I'm glad you see that. And at that moment, he walked over to the other side of the room and sat down and had a very sad look on his face. And I said to him, hey, what's going on? And he looked at me and said, I can't talk about it right now. After lunch, he came up to me and said with great sorrow in his voice, Marshall, I wish you had taught me two years ago about anger, what you taught me this morning. If I had known that two years ago, I wouldn't have had to have killed my best friend. And then he went on to tell me this tragic story about how the friend said some things that just totally outraged him. And then he was thinking that he was angry at his friend for saying those things. He wasn't aware that the friend didn't cause his anger, the statements didn't cause his anger. It was how he thought about them that caused his anger. And he saw that if he could have connected to what his friend's needs were behind what the friend said, or if he had been connected to his own needs at that moment, there would have been ways of finding out strategies for meeting everybody's needs, and he wouldn't have had to have killed his best friend. So this principle is very important to liberating ourself from language which is not conducive to our well-being or peace on the planet. And the awareness is that all language that implies wrongness, that is a criticism, insult, diagnosis of pathology of others, all such language is the cause of anger. Other people are never the cause, only the stimulus. The cause of anger is our thinking. And that thinking that causes the anger is a distorted expression of an unmet need. A distorted expression that not only interferes with getting the need met, but makes it enjoyable to be violent to others. So, whenever we're angry, nonviolent communication shows us how to stop. Breathe, become conscious of what you are telling yourself that makes you angry. And when you see the thinking that makes you angry, transform it into the need that it's distorting. Ask yourself, wait a minute, what need of mine is not getting met that's being expressed through judgment of the other person? And you'll know that you have gotten connected to your need. Your body will tell you so. Your spirit will tell you so. We live in a different world when we are connected to what is alive in us, meaning our needs. We live in a different world than when we are up in our head judging other people in terms of rightness and wrongness. Now, learning how to become literate with the language of life, our needs, is going to take some practice. We're going to need to practice transforming language which stimulates violence into a language of life. What's helped me over the years to develop more of a language of life and less time of my life being angry and judging other people, what's helped me is an exercise that I do that I will recommend to you. In this exercise, I keep a book with me, something to write on at all times so that any time I get angry, I write down the stimulus for the anger because very often at that moment I don't have time to transform the thinking that creates that anger. But I don't want to miss this learning opportunity. So when I get angry at someone, I make a note about what did this person say or do that stimulated my anger. Then when I have time later on, I then say to myself, now what was I telling myself that made me so angry? And I become conscious of the thinking that was going on in my head that made me angry just that is helpful because it keeps reminding me that it's not the other people that make me angry it's what i tell myself and then when i see what i have told myself that makes me angry i ask myself now what need of mine was not getting met at that time that was hidden behind the way i was thinking about the person And then I translate that judgment of the other into a need of mine that wasn't met. And again, as soon as I get connected to that need, I'm in a different world than when I'm up in my head judging people. I like the way Rumi the poet expresses this. He says, there's a place beyond right and wrongdoing. I'll meet you there. And nonviolent communication supports us to live in the place beyond right and wrongdoing in a place where people see each other's needs and enjoy contributing to each other's needs. But anger tells us that we are thinking in a way that blocks our needs, that blocks our awareness of our needs and the other person's needs. So it can be a helpful friend, anger. We can use it as a wake-up call to identify the thinking that's making us angry and transforming it into an unmet need. Now, when I was first learning how to do this transformation of my anger, it would take me a while, because I was very skilled at judging what's wrong with other people in a way that would make me angry, but I wasn't very skilled at understanding my needs, getting connected to my needs. So it would sometimes be awkward when I was angry, because I would stop right there at that time, take a deep breath, identify the thinking making me angry, connect to the need behind it, and then I would open my mouth. But this would take me some time, and this was awkward in certain situations. For example, one time my oldest son and I were having a disagreement, and this was at a time when I was first learning nonviolent communication, and something he said and the way he said it just really stimulated some anger on my part. So I took a breath, and I saw what I was telling myself that made me angry. I saw the need behind that, and as soon as I saw the need creating the anger, I no longer felt angry. Then, when I opened my mouth, I came out of a different energy than if I had reacted immediately out of the anger. But this was taking me some time, and meanwhile his friends were outside waiting for him, and... He said, Dad, it's taking you so long to talk. I said, let me tell you what I can say quickly. Do it my way or I'll kick your butt. He said, take your time, Dad. Take your time. People who have known me in the days before I learned nonviolent communication are very patient when I take my time. They know what comes out quickly. They're willing to wait to hear what's really alive in me and to hear that life in me described in a way that doesn't imply wrongness on their part. So, one way in which we can make our own life much more enjoyable is whenever we are thinking in a way that is causing anger, depression, guilt, or shame, to transform that thinking into what need of ours is being distorted by the thinking that's causing those feelings. Now, let's look at another way in which by transforming that thinking, we can make our life richer and more enjoyable. Let's look at how we can learn from our mistakes without losing self-respect. In my workshops, I do this exercise by asking people to identify a mistake they've made recently. And when they have identified the mistake, I ask them to tell me what they said to themselves when they saw that they had made this mistake. And I say, if you can't remember exactly what you said to yourself, I'm sure by now you have a pretty good idea of how you usually talk to yourself when you're less than perfect. So just guess what you might have said to yourself. Here are very typical statements of how people tell me they talk to themselves when they're less than perfect. What a stupid thing to do. How could you be such an idiot? That was so selfish. What's wrong with you? They have hundreds of these statements that run through them very quickly whenever they make a mistake. And all of these statements imply wrongness of a sort that deserves for them to suffer for what they've done. It's not hard to to understand where this comes from because I ask the people what are the first messages you could remember said to you by adults in your life when you did something the adults didn't like and it's very clear that they are simply repeating to themselves the kind of messages that they heard when they were children who did things that the parents didn't like that's bad that's stupid what's wrong with you you shouldn't do that so when these are the first words we've heard from other people when we haven't done what they wanted, of course then we learn how to do that to ourselves. Now we'll know we're doing that to ourselves when we feel depressed, guilty, or shame because those feelings are a result of our judging ourselves in a way that implies that there is something wrong with us for what we did. This is a very costly way to think. Not only is it costly by how it creates depression, guilt, and shame, but it also has a very negative effect on our bodies. The more we think in ways that create anger, depression, guilt, and shame, the more heart disease. In the medical research, the thinking that creates those feelings is referred to as type A thinking. It's essentially thinking that implies badness or wrongness of a kind that is deserving of blame or punishment. And it's a language, tragically, that the majority of people in our society have been trained to think in terms of. So in the exercise where I have asked people to identify what they tell themselves when they have made a mistake, once they identify this thinking, I then suggest that they transform that thinking into the need that wasn't met, that stimulated the thinking. In other words, I tell them that all of the thinking that makes us angry, depressed, guilt, or shame is a tragic expression of an unmet need. To really learn from this mistake without losing self respect, we need to mourn, but to mourn without blaming. This is a very important difference in nonviolent communication to be aware of the difference between mourning and blaming ourselves. Mourning requires that we be connected to our need that wasn't met by our behavior. When we're connected to that, we might feel sadness, frustration, but these are quite different feelings in terms of their effect on our spirit and on our bodies than how we feel when we blame ourselves and feel the depression, guilt, shame. So, we suggest that whenever you see yourself blaming yourself for a mistake, become conscious of the blame, see what you're telling yourself, Be conscious that it's a tragic expression of an unmet need and hear the need that's being expressed behind it. Now this takes some practice on the part of people because they very often have a very weak need vocabulary. So we suggest that everyone build at least a vocabulary of about nine words that describe various needs that you have and at least see if one of those words or more resonate when you're blaming yourself. Because the quicker we can transform a thinking of blame into a thinking of unmet needs, the quicker we're going to be able to learn from our mistakes without losing self-respect. So we call this kind of self-empathy, empathizing with the need being expressed behind self-blame, we call that Mourning. Mourning our limitations, that we didn't meet a need by what we did. After we have helped the person to mourn, that is, to see how they're blaming themselves for the mistake, and after we get them to see that the blame is a tragic expression of an unmet need, and when they get in touch with the need, to see how they feel sadness or discouragement, but never depression, guilt or shame, Then we teach people self-forgiveness, and we do that by asking them this question. What need were you trying to meet by doing this behavior that we're calling a mistake? Now, that's very confusing for many people because they don't think in terms of what needs were they trying to meet by doing it. They just go quickly to blaming themselves. So it takes people a while on this exercise to stop and say to themselves, now, what need of mine was I trying to meet by doing what I did? So, for example, if it's a parent who is mourning how they screamed at their child and some of the things they said to a child of theirs, they might come out with this. I had a need for his safety and I was scared that what he was doing would harm him. So then the person can see the need they were trying to meet by doing what they did. Now, once people do understand the need that they were trying to meet by doing what they did that we're calling a mistake, there's again a relief. They can feel some pain for what they did, but it's a relief to see that they didn't do it because they're a bad person. They did it to meet a need of theirs. And that's what we call self forgiveness. Because, as they say in A Course in Miracles, when we empathize, there's nothing to forgive. So, that's how we show people how to apply nonviolent communication when they've made a mistake. First, be conscious of what you tell yourself as a result of making the mistake, and translate the self judgment that's likely to be there into an unmet need. And that's mourning. And then empathize with what need you were trying to meet by the action that we're calling a mistake. And that's self-forgiveness. Now, sometimes the two needs are the same. That is, the need that wasn't met is very often the need we were trying to meet. However, the strategy we used for trying to meet the need just didn't work. But sometimes the need we were trying to meet does get met but at the cost of other needs. For example, one night I was in a hotel in one country and I needed some relaxation and I got my guitar out and started to play it and this was meeting my need for recreation and rest. But then the telephone rang and it was the front desk letting me know that my playing the guitar was keeping my neighbor awake Well, then I started to blame myself. Oh, how could I be so dumb, etc. Then I caught myself doing that, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What need of mine wasn't met by what I did? Immediately, I saw that I had a need to be more sensitive and responsive to my neighbor's well-being. But when I got connected to that, I felt sad, but I didn't feel guilty or shame, and I wasn't angry at myself. And, in this case the need that i was trying to meet by playing the guitar was being met my need for recreation but my need for respecting my neighbor's health was not met when i get both those needs in my consciousness i can learn from the situation without losing self-respect over the years a lot of people have asked me to work with them who were very depressed In my clinical training, I was taught to look at depression as an illness, as a mental illness. But I now come to see it in quite a different way. I now see that depression is created in the same way that anger is created. By the language which we have been educated to use. Anger is created by a language we use when other people behave in ways we don't like. And I find that depression is created by people judging themselves in a way that creates the depression. So when I'm seeing somebody who's very depressed, I ask them, what needs of yours are not being met? But they very seldom are able to tell me that because they haven't been educated to be conscious of their needs. They've been educated to blame themselves and others. So it takes a while to help these people see that They're depressed because they are thinking what's wrong with them and being disconnected from what needs of theirs are not being met. So the conversation often goes like this. I ask them, what needs of yours are not being met? And they say, I'm a failure. See, I ask about needs. They tell me a judgment they have of themselves. And I point out this difference to them. I say, well, you're telling me now what you think of yourself. I'm asking, what need of yours is not being met? And they think again. And they say, I compare myself to my brother and sister, and I see what they've accomplished in life, and I see what I have, and it just shows me what a failure I am. Now notice there again, not telling me the answer to my question of what needs of yours aren't getting met they're telling me this analysis they have of themselves that comes from comparing themselves to their brother and sister. I often tell such people to read the book How to Make Yourself Miserable by Dan Greenberg and they'll see in there how we make ourselves miserable when we compare ourselves to other people. For example, he has a picture in that book of a very attractive man and a very attractive woman and all of their measurements are on the picture. And the exercise is take your measurements, compare them to these beautiful people, and think about the difference. This book produces, if you do that exercise, you'll be miserable in a short time. So I try to show people that it's this kind of thinking that makes us depressed what we tell ourselves about ourselves, that we judge ourselves in a way we've been trained to judge people. And it's these judgments that imply badness, wrongness, inferiority, abnormality that creates the depression. And once people have identified these judgments that create their depression, I show them how to transform these judgments into unmet needs. And they experience what a different world they live in when they get connected to the need that isn't getting met rather than get stuck in these ways in which they judge themselves.
0: On this International Peace Day, we're listening to Marshall Rosenberg, here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio.
1: One day, I was going to be doing a workshop in one country in the evening, and one of the people coordinating my schedule in that country said, Marshall, do you think it'd be all right if I brought my daughter to the workshop tonight? she's in a mental hospital now she's been there for some time and she's terribly depressed and she just sits and doesn't say anything and stares at the floor do you think it would hurt her to come to your training this evening i said well there's going to be a lot of people there and i don't think i'll be able to do any work specifically with her but if you want to bring her i don't see any problem so that night the mother brought her daughter about 19 years old to the workshop and I could see as soon as she walked in how sad she looked she just looked down at the floor and the whole night she just seemed to be very very depressed during the course of that evening I told the group some thoughts about depression that I mentioned a few minutes ago that I saw depression not as a result of an illness that people have but simply that they're thinking about themselves in a way that creates the depression and that if we can get people to identify this thinking and be conscious that that thinking is all a distortion of their needs and teach them how to hear their needs. There's a radical transformation comes about. People don't get stuck in the depression. They can start to imagine ways of getting the needs met in a more fulfilling way. And I gave a couple examples of that that evening. At the end of the evening, they were going to take a picture of me for publicity purposes. And just at the moment that they were going to snap the picture, It looked to me as though somebody was coming to hit me because I saw an arm being thrown toward me and I quickly looked over and it was this young woman and she was throwing her arm around me. But the picture got snapped just at that point where I was still thinking that someone's trying to hit me and so I looked very deranged in this picture but she had such a benevolent look on her face. It's been one of my favorite pictures that I've kept for years. I look like the person who earlier that day had been in a mental hospital. And as she's throwing her arm around my neck, she's saying, Thank you, Marshall. Thank you so much for showing me that my depression is a result of what I'm telling myself. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. She came out of the hospital the next day, and that was about 10 years ago now. And I've kept track of her progress with her mother. And the mother told me she's doing very well. Now, the next day when she came out of the hospital, I did work with her and give her a little bit of practice on how to identify these inner messages that tell us there's something wrong with ourselves, and how to translate these messages into unmet needs. And to see that when we hear our unmet needs, what comes to our consciousness, are possibilities for meeting these needs, But when we think in the static language of what's wrong with us what are we selfish stupid inconsiderate when we have that language going on inside of ourselves about ourselves that doesn't lead us to get our needs met our needs are buried behind that kind of thinking now why do we think that way as I said in an earlier session we think that way because we have been educated to think that way. And we have been educated to think that way because the structures we have been living under for a long time require people to be nice dead people. We teach them this language of blame so that they will be forever looking outward to authorities to see whether they are getting the right answer or the wrong answer whether they are being judged as good or bad. Because in those cultures you get punished if you're bad and rewarded if you're good so this programs people's brains to live in that world of judgment one of my favorite plays was written by herb gardner it's called a thousand clowns and in one part of that play the educational authorities come to the hero's house because he has kept his nephew age 12 at home his nephew is not going to school so the school authorities are questioning him about this about why he is not sending his nephew, to school. And he answers this way. He said, I just want him to stay with me till I can be sure he won't turn into another carbon copy of that ever-popular modern hero, Norman Nothing. I want to be sure he'll know when he's chickening out on himself. I want him to stay awake and to know who the phonies are. I want him to know how to holler and put up an argument. I want to be sure he sees all the wild possibilities. I want him to know it's worth all the trouble just to give the world a little goosing when you get the chance. And I want him to know the subtle, sneaky, important reason why he was born a human being and not a chair. So nonviolent communication wants to support people to see that they are human beings and not a chair so that's why nonviolent communication focuses our attention on what's alive in us and what's alive in other people and doesn't get us stuck in thinking of what we are but to really stay connected to our humanness moment by moment requires a language different than that in which we have been educated it requires a language of life and this language of life as i have described a core ingredient is our needs. To be able to say at any moment what need is alive in us. When our needs are being fulfilled, we want to celebrate. When our needs are not being fulfilled, we want to mourn. So, our feelings tell us what is happening to our needs. When we feel pleasureful feelings, we know that our needs are being fulfilled. When we feel painful feelings or unpleasant feelings, we know our needs are not being fulfilled. So to be fully alive requires a language of life, and that requires a language of feelings and needs. And we need to know how to translate all of the judgments that have been put in our head that involve wrongness, and to be conscious that they are all tragic expressions of unmet needs. So as soon as we feel the anger, depression, guilt, or shame, we need to be able to look up in our head, and see the thinking that's causing it, and then translate that thinking into what needs of ours are not getting met. Another thing we need to liberate ourselves from if we want to really enjoy being a human being, we need to liberate ourselves from thinking that we can cause other people's feelings. We need to be real clear about this important word, responsibility. We need to see what we can be responsible for and what we are not responsible for. Because when we get this mixed up, we can be victimized by guilt tripping. Let me show you what I mean. Many parents try to motivate their children this way. Let's say the child has not done something that the parent would like the child to have done. For example, clean up their room. So now the parent puts themselves in the line of sight where the child can see them. And the parent looks very pathetic. And then when the child sees the parent looking that way, they say, What's the matter? And the parent says, Nothing. And the child says, Yes, it looks like something's the matter. What's the matter? And the parent says, It hurts me when you don't clean up your room. Now, if the child loves the parent, and the child believes that it was their behavior that hurts the parent, they feel guilty. And they may go in and clean up the room then, but it'll be very costly because any action we take out of that kind of guilt is not taken out of caring for people. It's taken to release ourselves from the guilt. And this brings negative associations to the guilt-inducing person. So whenever we motivate by guilt, it's costly to us. So in nonviolent communication, It is stressed to be aware that we are responsible for our own feelings. Other people can't make us feel anything. Our feelings are a result of how we take things. And we cannot make other people feel as they do. They are responsible for how they take it. So we show we're not responsible for how other people feel. We are responsible for our actions. And to demonstrate this, I often ask somebody to insult me. And somebody might say to me, Marshall, you're telling boring stories. And I show the group now. I have several choices of how I interpret that. I could interpret what this person just said, that I am a boring person, that I tell boring stories. If I take it that way, I'm likely to feel shame. But then it isn't what the other person said that made me feel shame. It's how I took it. I believe that I was boring and that it's bad to be boring. So I would be responsible for how I took it and the shame I felt. The other person is responsible for what they said and how they said it. Now, of course, when the person said that to me, I could have interpreted that that was rude of them to say that they had no right to say that to me. If I took it that way, I would be feeling angry. But it wouldn't have been the other person making me angry. They're not responsible for my anger. My anger would have been created by my thinking that they were rude and had no right to say that to me. So once again, I would be responsible for how I took it and how I felt. They are responsible for what they did. Now, one of the things that people often go through when they're learning nonviolent communication and they see how what they're telling themselves creates their feelings. So they see that they're telling themselves thoughts like that was a stupid thing to do and that that's that way they took it that's making them feel such shame and guilt. So very often when people see that they're thinking in that way that creates their feeling of shame and guilt they then say to themselves, I shouldn't feel that way. What's wrong with me? I've been studying nonviolent communication long enough that I should no longer think that way. So they judge themselves for judging themselves, which just makes them feel even worse than ever. So we suggest that in learning nonviolent communication is very important to keep conscious at all times that the goal of life is not to be perfect. It's to become progressively less stupid. So, let's learn from our limitations, let's learn from our errors, see them as opportunities to develop ourselves, and to keep in mind that anything that's worth doing is worth doing poorly. So I'd like to give a couple examples of how we can learn from our limitations when we transform our self-judgments into needs. I was presenting in front of 800 teachers in a school system, And I was asked to speak at their once-a-year meeting. And after I presented what I had to say about how to create schools in harmony with nonviolent communication, four of the school administrators were on a panel to react to what I said. And one of the persons said to me, when he heard that I was suggesting in our schools we had no punishments, and we didn't judge students as bad but that we spoke honestly with them about whether or not their behavior was in harmony with our values or needs. We judged that way but not judgments of a moralistic sort that implied wrongness. Well, I wasn't surprised that this might upset some of the school administrators since this way of looking at the world is quite different than how many people have been educated. So he said with rather intense voices... You know, it's people like you that are causing the problems we're having in the schools nowadays with all of your permissiveness. Above all, we administrators and teachers must teach students to obey authority and do what they're told. Now, something about the way he said above all just really stimulated me. And instead of acting in harmony with the principles I was teaching, I got very defensive and said to him, it's attitudes like that that we should just obey authority above everything else. That's why six million people got shoved into ovens. This started a very unproductive discussion between us. What made it worse, some of the people in the audience applauded what I was saying, so I got into an argument with him about who's right, and we weren't connecting with what each other's needs were. And that evening, as I was driving from that workshop to another one in another city, I didn't like at all the way I handled him, how I responded to him. And the first few minutes I was in the car, I blamed myself. Oh, what a stupid thing to do. How could you have talked to him that way? You just ruined everything. You're never going to be invited back to that school system again. But then when I caught myself blaming myself, I stopped saw this self-blame and asked myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What need of mine didn't get met by how I responded to that man? And right away I could see what the need was. I was not responding to him with the respect that I would like to respond to people. I wasn't meeting my own need for respecting people. Now, when I saw that need, I was very sad, but at least... I didn't feel the kind of feelings I felt when I was blaming myself, the shame, the guilt, the anger toward myself. But I felt a deep sadness. I could see that I was not responding to him in a way that met my need for respecting of people. And then I asked myself, what need of mine was I trying to meet by behaving in the way that I did? And all of a sudden it became very clear to me what my need was. I needed understanding for how frightening it was for me to hear somebody saying above all we have to teach people obedience to authority. The word above all stimulated in me memory of how in Nazi Germany people were educated to believe above all you have to obey the Fuhrer. So then I saw both parts of myself I mourned that I didn't meet my need for respect the way I treated this person. But I could also see that I behaved as I did out of my need for understanding for how frightening it was for me for authorities to have this belief that above all, we have to teach children obedience to authority. Now, by being in touch with both of those needs, I have a better chance to learn, because I said to myself, now, how would I have liked to have behaved differently in that situation? And I realized, if I had behaved differently, I would have liked to have understood what that person was feeling and needing behind his statement, above all, we have to teach children obedience. And I realized that he probably had a need for order and safety in the schools, and believed that This is important for having rules to maintain this order and safety. And I had the same needs. So then I could see that we didn't have different needs. We might have had different strategies, but we didn't have different needs. So I saw that if I would have heard that message with empathy and seen that we had the same needs, I would have responded to him in a much different way, in a way that I believed we could have learned from each other without becoming enemies. That night I was presenting in another school system and a person responded to me in a very similar way to how the principal had responded to me earlier that day. But this time, thanks to the learning that I went through while driving in the car, when this person said, we have to teach children obedience to authority. It's people like you with your permissiveness that's causing the problems we have nowadays. Now I could hear behind those words, and I could hear the need for order and safety. And I said to him, sir, are you concerned with what you hear me saying? Because you want to be sure we have order and safety in the schools, and we need rules in order for that to happen. And he said, that's right. And then I could show him that I was also in favor of rules but that I showed him a different way of establishing rules and rules based on the protective use of force and not the punitive use of force. And we connected in a very positive way. After that meeting, he came up to me and said he was a minister at one of the local churches. And he wanted to apologize for coming and saying the things he had said at the beginning. He said, I see now, I didn't understand the kind of program you and the superintendent are trying to create here in the system. He said, I would like to invite you to come to my church and give a presentation to the people in my church. I think it would be very helpful for them. And that started a connection I had with him and his church that lasted 20 years, where twice a year I would go to his church and do training in nonviolent communication. So I offer this as an example of how we can learn from our limitations without blaming ourselves, hating ourselves. And we do that by. Being conscious of what need isn't met by our behavior and then empathizing with what needs we are trying to meet at those times that we are behaving in a way that doesn't meet some of our needs. Another way in which nonviolent communication supports people in living the life they choose to live instead of the life that sometimes they have been programmed by their culture to live. ...is to know how to deal with other people's messages that come at you in a way that never gives other people the power to dehumanize you. I'm going to be talking in greater depth about this in a later session on the subject of empathy. But for the moment, I'd like to concentrate on how we can train ourselves never to give our power away to other people. I ask a lot of people, what are you afraid to say? Give me examples of when you're afraid to be honest, afraid to be yourself, to say something. And when people in the group have thought of what they're afraid to say, they write down what the message might sound like. I then ask them, what makes you afraid to say that? And almost everybody answers my question of why they're afraid this way. Well, I'm afraid that if I said that, the other person might and then they tell me what they think the other person might say to them or think of them. And I point out to people how concerned I am about thinking that that's what we have to be afraid of. How other people might respond to us. That is what they might say about us or think about us. And I point out that by doing that we're giving our power to other people. We're thinking that our safety depends on how other people might respond to us. I then try to show people that our need is to be concerned with how we respond to how the other person responds. That's where our safety is in how we learn to respond to other people's judgments or criticism of us. But not to give our power away by thinking that our safety is solely how they might respond. So in other words, our safety is in how we respond to other people, not in how they respond to us. And I then show them how we have all these choices when people say things to us, how we can take it personally and feel shame, how we can judge them and feel angry, or how we can empathically connect with them. And then when we do that, we can learn from whatever that person is saying in a way that's valuable to us. So in this way, people can see that our safety is a result of how we respond. That puts our safety in our hands and doesn't give our power away to other people. In schools that we've created, which we call nonviolent communication schools in some areas, and we have other names for them in other areas, but in these schools we teach the teachers and the administrators and the students, how to speak nonviolent communication. My oldest son went to a school like this where the students all learned nonviolent communication. And we want the students to know what I was just saying that your security rests in your hands. Don't ever give up your security to the structures in which you're in or to other people's messages toward you. And one of my happiest days as a parent occurred when my oldest son came back from a public school for the first time. The school he had gone to, I had had a chance to train the teachers, but in the public school, the teachers communicated in a way that's not what I would like to see how teachers or administrators would communicate with students. My son came home the first day and I asked him, how is a new school, Rick? He said, it's okay, Dad, but boy, Dad, some of those teachers, wow. I said, what happened? He said, Dad, I was only halfway through the front door of the school. And some man teacher comes running up to me and says, My, my, look at the little girl. The teacher was reacting to my son's hair, which was down to his shoulders at the time. So this is unfortunately rather typical of many schools. Look at the lessons my son was learning from being halfway through the door. Lesson number one, there's a right and a wrong way to do everything, such as how to wear your hair. Lesson number two, who knows what's right? People with the highest title, in this case, the teacher knows what's right. Lesson number three, try to influence shame and guilt to get people to do as you want. Lesson number four, it's a shame to be a girl. All of those lessons very quickly and my son's halfway through the door of the school. So I said to my son, how did you handle it? He said, I remember what you said, dad, that when you're in that kind of structure, Never give the structure or the people in it the power to make you submit or rebel. This is one of the things that I would hope we all help our children to learn. how to Learn how to come from your own spirituality. How to answer for yourself, what's the way in which I choose to live? And to learn how to sustain that and stay conscious of it, regardless of the structures you're in. Or regardless of how people within those structures speak to you. So I said to my son, wow, am I glad that you could remember that under those conditions. I said, what did you do then? He said, I just tried to hear his feelings and needs, Dad. I just guessed that he was irritated and wanted me to cut my hair. Now, this is another lesson that we would like children to learn, how to see people's humanness, no matter how they communicate. And once again, I was very delighted that my son could remember to do that. And I said to him, how did you feel after you heard what you thought he might be feeling and needing? He said, dad, I felt sad for the man. He was bald and seemed to have a thing about hair. So this is one of the lessons that nonviolent communication is designed to help us remember at all times. No matter what structures we're in, to never give the structure or its rules the power to determine what we do to make sure that each of our actions comes from our consciousness of our own values and are choosing to act in harmony with our own values in this way we are not submitting or rebelling we are acting in harmony with our own values each moment Walter Wink the theologian says it's very important to be conscious that institutions have their own spirituality so many structures are set up in a way that designed to get people to obey authority no matter what the authority wants them to do so I would hope that we educate ourselves that no matter what structures we're in we stay connected to our own spirituality and neither submit nor rebel and then I hope that we all develop the skill that my son demonstrated by no matter how people speak to us whatever their titles that we try to see their humanness but not to give them the power to make us submit or rebel, and not to give them the power to create shame on our part, depression on our part. But this requires some skills that we'll be talking about in subsequent sessions that will show us how to see other people's humanness, even when they are speaking to us in a violent language, even if they have positions of power within institutions that do not share values of compassion.
0: And that was Marshall Rosenberg the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication who taught nonviolent communication all over the world for many years and helped create schools that taught Nonviolent communication. And that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.